when Abraham Lincoln suspended the privilege or the writ of habeas corpus after the attack on Fort Sumter in 1861. It was also controversial when Congress passed the Patriot Act after the attack of September 11, 2001. Our guest today has studied the first and adjudicated cases under the second. Find out how Frank Williams compares the two when we return on Civil War Talk Radio. How much time each day do you spend managing your personal or business calendar? 15 minutes, a half an hour, maybe more. Is the conference room available for next week's meeting? And how many people do you have to ask to find out? Have you ever misplaced or, worse yet, lost your day planner or handheld device? And what do you do about that missing information? Do you own or operate a salon or carpet cleaning business? How about a realty office or any one of a thousand other service-based organizations? Can your customers make their appointments even when your office is closed? If any of this sounds familiar, then Schedule Online is the solution for you. For more information, call toll-free 888-668-3355. That's 888-668-3355. Or visit us online at www.schedulonline.com. Before we return to our riveting drama, our sponsor insists that we listen to a radio show about television. I'm Jim Benson, host of A Different Sort, as I direct you toward a galaxy of TV memories guaranteed to leave you spellbound while I present many of the greatest legends in television history on the TV Time Machine, every Wednesday beginning at 4 p.m. right here on World Talk Radio. World Talk Radio, bringing the world to you. To speak with our show hosts or guests during the live show, call us toll-free in North America, 888-514-2100. Everywhere else, call 001-858-268-3068. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. Jerry Prokopovich, and our guest today is Frank Williams, Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of Rhode Island, author of Judging Lincoln and other works about our 16th president. Frank, you mentioned in our first segment that there are some parallels worth exploring between Lincoln's actions in regard to civil liberties, his suspension of the privilege of writ of habeas corpus, for example, and some of the things that have happened in the 21st century some of which you've been directly involved in yourself. Uh, yes. Could you talk about that? Sure. Well, you re- remember how much uh, history r- really instructs us, and, and I think starting with the Lincoln experience in the 80 days between the firing on Fort Sumter, which also had an anniversary this week in Charleston Harbor, and the time that the Congress met in special session on July 4, Lincoln took uh, major acts that uh, that are normally reserved to the Congress. He increased the size of the Army and Navy, appropriated funds for the purchase of arms and munitions. He declared a blockade of the southern coast, which is an act of war. Uh, and as you just indicated, Jerry, that this this um, very important measure that he did was to authorize General Winfield Scott, the head of the the Union forces 
to suspend this precious writ of habeas corpus that you and I know uh, is so ingrained in our Constitution and in our daily uh, rights with our clients who may be incarcerated. That's, That's like when I was a trial judge, I used to sign a habeas petition every day ordering the warden to take to, to bring in certain prisoners to have their detention checked and examined by a magistrate. Well, that, that right to have that checked was suspended by um, Lincoln, and the, the um, geographic area that it would cover only expanded more and more as the war, uh, as the war enveloped the, the uh, two sections of our country. So we have now this war on terror, from September 11, 2001. Some of us think the war on terror really started about the time of the Beirut bombing of the Marine Corps barracks, if you recall that. And now you have enemy an enemy. Forget the war in Iraq now. You have an enemy like um, al-Qaeda and other terrorist cells and groups that wish to do mayhem to are United States citizens and other world citizens without regard to what uh, we in the past have called the law of war. Even in war, there are certain rules and a certain amount of civility. You don't target civilians, for example. And uh, you have a chain of command and you wear a uniform and you belong to a nation state. Well, none of that is present uh, with al-Qaeda, for example, and the... And the um, confusion confounded I think by the administration and our own uh, democracy is how do we deal with these people do they get the same rights that that we get as United States citizens um, we have the Guantanamo situation where there are about 440 detainees none are US citizens uh, we have the Hamdi and the Padilla cases with with these two US citizens being held or formally being held at the, at the Navy brig in Charleston. And what rights do they get? Well, the president, um, with his secretary of defense and, and uh, administration, promulgated rules and regulations to handle these. Uh, that would be tr- uh, military tribunals in Guantanamo um, or elsewhere. And uh, they, these people would not receive the same rights that... Um, that we would get in in our U.S. courts. Some of these terrorists, by the way, like Musa, like Musawi, who's supposed to be the twentieth hijacker, are being tried in the U.S. courts. And I, I I have a great deal of empathy for this administration trying to struggle with what to do with this part of this of this war that that we're engaged in. And and of course I accept the fact that, as I think you do, that it's tough to have a war against a methodology terrorism. The war the wars are, are normally against a particular nation or group, and uh, we we're struggling with um, what to do with these people that are that are captured in in this um, backwash. Now, as you know, um, many of these people have brought suit in the federal court, which is great, which is our, our system, and it's gone up at least in one. Um, in one segment to the U.S. Supreme Court, and they came down with opinions last June, you may recall, that indicated that these detainees, whether U.S. citizens or not, had some rights, the right to challenge their detention, even though they had the burden of going forward, the right to have counsel, 
and uh, there was a right to hold these hearings on on detention uh, at a neutral tribunal, not precluding a military court. And now, those decisions having been rendered, there are cases now going back up to the U.S. Supreme Court in the federal system, challenging certain acts of the government and certain decisions of U.S. district judges in Washington. Uh, There have been four decisions, and they're all different. So we haven't heard the last of this, and we haven't winnowed out um, just what protocol is going to be acceptable uh, in our system. Now, I happen to serve on the Military Commission's review panel. There are four of us that have been appointed by the President through the Secretary of Defense to hear appeals from any tribunals that are held in Guantanamo Bay. Now, we have not sat... Uh, because there has been no business, uh, there has there have been no tribunals pending these appeals in the federal courts, and that that pretty much I think sums up um, where we are. And we talk about the Patriot Act, and that's out there with some sunset provisions that Congress is now considering uh, whether or not to let them die a, a natural death or to reenact them. So we're in the midst of this great. Um, um, uncertainty. Uh, we want to be fair. This is a humane society in which we live, and yet we want to prosecute those who have and will do um, or might do damage to our people. And you're in a position then as a member of this review board where should these cases go forward in Guantanamo and then be appealed, you'd be, in a, be one of the people adjudicating them. Correct. So this we, we, is not just an abstraction to you. This is something you're personally involved right. in. Right. And, 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 of course, I, I'm trying to be as, as fair and objective as I can in, in presenting what the issues are, Jerry, because I'm, I may get to be asked with my other panel members what to do about whether or not the Geneva Conventions apply, whether or not these um, detainees should be treated as they argue they should be as prisoners of war rather than enemy combatants, which is what the administration labels them. And there are certain rights that you get under the Geneva Convention, as you and your listeners know. Uh, you get almost the same rights as a service person who is tried by courts martial. So the, the, these are very important issues. Some of them will shake out in the federal courts, I think, but we're certainly going to get some once... Uh, once these tribunals get underway, let's let's pull us back to the Civil War for a minute. With in Lincoln's position, uh, the, the Geneva Convention, the first Geneva Convention, had not been held at, but in right. 1861, and Lincoln had to face the question of what status to accord individual people who were attempting to kill federal agents. Uh, right. That is to say, Southern soldiers attempting to kill Union soldiers. Uh, he had a, he might have considered them uh, as committing treason, as committing capital crimes, uh, but he, he didn't do so. How, how did that work out? Well, he, he delegated that responsibility, I think, Jerry, you know this, to the commanders in the field, and he allowed them to, to deal with uh, um, those 
uh, guerrillas, let's, is what they were called, terrorists today. Well, no, let me, let me, I'm saying the regular soldiers, the, uh, the soldiers captured on the field of... Well, the soldiers, of course, were in a way treated as prisoners of war, but not very well, north and south, as, mm-hmm. as all of us know. Many deaths in Andersonville and Belle Isle and um, uh, you know, other places, Johnson's Island, you, you name it, uh, Camp Douglas in Chicago. Um, and um, they were, they, as you know, too, for a while until it was stopped um, by General Grant and others, they, they were, there were exchanges of prisoners uh, with, uh, with officers and, and um, uh, enlisted or draftees. And uh, that was stopped uh, because it was just a facade. You were just giving back to the enemy uh, troops to be recycled in, in, into, into the war machine. Um, there were also those 16,000 or so unknowns who were on the periphery of the war that were detained, all U.S. citizens probably, uh, detained as Mark Neely demonstrates in his Pulitzer Prize-winning book, The Fate of Liberty. Um, Abraham Lincoln and Civil Liberties. And uh, there were at least 4,200 military tribunals held during the Lincoln administration. Many of these people were summarily executed because there was no Geneva. Uh, This professor at Columbia University, Francis Lieber, was asked by General Halleck with Lincoln's blessing to come up with a code of war, and he did. It was the first such code of war, and I think a precursor to Geneva, the Geneva Accords. And even he permitted uh, the summary execution of guerrillas who, who killed civilians. We've come a long way from that, I think. But, but some of the same challenges that faced them in the, the, that administration faced this administration and we as a people. No, I think that's right. You really see a wide range of, of problems and issues that Lincoln faced. When the war begins, uh, he could theoretically, well, well, he held that it was a rebellion, uh, not, not a legal secession. And thus, those who were, in, at least those in, in, responsible for it, in charge of it, could be uh, charged with treason. That's right. But he chose not to do so, certainly during the war. At first, I believe there was an issue with privateers in particular, right. whether they would be uh, tried as pirates and executed. And Lincoln backs away from doing any of that. Guerrillas are a harder case, and as you point out, there are executions there. Right. But he had to temper his what might have been legal with what was practical and, and politically workable. That's absolutely correct, and, and as you recall, there were challenges in the federal court to Lincoln's policy. Um, John Merriman in Maryland, which was very pro-Southern at the beginning of the war and throughout the war, uh, they were recruiting units to fight for the Confederate states. That Maryland was on one side of the nation's capital and Virginia on the other. Virginia secedes. Lincoln fights like the devil to prevent Maryland from seceding. And Merriman is organizing Confederate militia in Maryland. He's captured and held at Fort McHenry. He seeks a writ of habeas corpus from the Federal Justice Riding Circuit, Chief Justice Tawney. Tawney does issue the writ, bring the body, uh, bring Merriman to him. The Fort Commander, uh, Cadwallader, refuses. Uh, Tawney issues 
a contempt citation. The U.S. Marshal can't get in the fort to serve it. And Tawny sits down and writes this beautifully uh, written uh, decision or opinion called Ex Parte Merriman, which Lincoln ignores. The problem with the opinion is it takes it never takes into account that we were in that we were in the Civil War. Lincoln preferred to make his answer or response to that to the Congress on July fourth. Why should all the laws but one, you know, be disobeyed and, and the country itself go to pieces lest that one be violating, meaning the writ of habeas corpus. And for your listeners they should know that while we we cherish this right to have a detention checked, examined, uh, by a writ of habeas corpus, there is a provision in our Constitution where the writ can be suspended. When? In cases of rebellion, or when the public safety requires it. And that's that's what Lincoln was using as the basis for his authorized suspension. What, of course, was controversial then and now is who has that right to suspend the writ. The Congress, and I think that's correct, or the President. Of course, Lincoln, being a very strong leader, an excellent lawyer who I think valued the writ, took the position that he could do things as Commander-in-Chief in wartime that he couldn't do in peacetime, and especially when, when Congress was not in session, which was the case when he initially authorized the suspension. Here's how clever Lincoln was and how Machiavellian. He would take the acts that were tough acts, some extra-constitutional, and then when Congress did come in to session, he would give them the choice. He would turn, it, turn the issues over to them to hopefully ratify, which, which they did. Lincoln could count votes, and I think he had the votes to to ratify the actions he took. But he, he, he went ahead and did them on his own. Uh, as you point out, the, the power to suspend the writ is, does not specify who has the power in the actual clause in the Constitution. That's right. But it does appear in Article 1. Right. Which, uh, section 9, which, are the congressional, um, which, are the con- which is the congressional section. Exactly. And oh, although you know our friend Dick Current, who's really the dean of all Lincoln students and scholars, I think, in his 90s now, always took the position that the uh, Committee on um, Style and Drafting at, um, in Philadelphia put it there more for convenience than for anything else. But, but I think, just think about today, just think about what the reaction would be of our country, our lawyers and judges and leaders and uh, everyone else, not just uh, at home but abroad, if if uh, George Bush were to um, suspend the writ of habeas corpus. First, I don't think he would do it on his own as Lincoln did, but let, just think of the furor there would be if he asked the, the, the Congress to do it. Yeah, it, it seems unlikely such a thing would happen today. And I, I hope it never happens. Well, I, I think we would share that belief, certainly. Well, we'll talk more about parallels between Lincoln's time and ours with our guest, Frank Williams, Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of Rhode Island, when we return on Civil War Talk Radio.